Hello and welcome to episode five of Repeat Until Funny, the history podcast that learns or tries to learn lessons of the past. With me is obviously James. Hello. James, what is a panic? A panic? Yeah. Uh, it's when the media instigates something so that the people in its society start to worry. And so you've, well, you've already hit upon something which is going to be really important to today's episode, which is the media. So when we panic, mm. what are we? Panicking. Panicking. So like afraid? Uh, yeah. You're, um, it's like nervous. It's not afraid panicking, is it? It's more nervous. Well, it's fear. fear it's an expression right. of fear. So it is afraid. Yeah. So from from that seamless opening that introduces our uh, topic for today, which is moral panics. Now, moral panics are quite interesting, quite complicated, quite nuanced. And we're going to explore exactly what a moral panic is as we go through. The first thing to say is you mentioned perhaps a definition of the word panic, a moral panic. We're going to have a look at how it's distinct from a political or an economic panic. What would be an economic panic? Can you think of any examples of that? Uh, banking cr- Oh, a, a bubble popping. You know? Like a financial bubble. Yeah, financial yeah. bubble. Yeah. Uh, so what does that mean? Well, it's like the breakdown of an economy. Yeah. Yeah. So a crash. So often you have in a crash, as you see in It's a Wonderful Life, you have a rush on the banks mm-hmm. where everyone runs to the bank and they try and get all of their money out of the bank as quickly as possible. Now, the danger of that is if everyone comes to take their money out of the bank, the bank doesn't have enough money, and the bank crashes, which loses more people's money. Mm. So the rational thing to do would be to just leave your money in the bank and wait for as long as possible. But the panic almost supersedes that and takes over that, and as a result, you don't act in a sort of rational or sensible way. No. Does that make sense? It does make sense. So this is our working definition of the moral panic. So a moral panic is a widespread fear, most often an irrational one, that someone or something is a threat to the values, safety, and interests of a community or society at large. So it's distinct from an economic panic because it's not about money, it's about people. And it's about values, and it's about safety, and it's about people's interests. Mm -hmm. Now this was studied in depth and sort of made sense of by a guy called Stanley Cohen. Stanley Cohen? Yeah. The Stanley the Cohen. The Stanley Cohen, yeah. Okay. Your, your eyes light up with acknowledgement of that name. Oh, yeah. He's on the bookshelf. He's on any good bookshelf next to whatever those books are. Philosopher man, psychiatric man. Freud. Freud. Yeah. And um, that guy. Nobunaga. Oh, obviously. That's, uh, did he write a book? Probably. Probably. Wrote a poem. Stanley Cohen identified five stages of the moral panic. He says that all moral panics follow five stages. Okay. And in this episode, we're going to look at one particular moral panic. But through that moral panic, we're going to explore some of the commonalities with other moral panics and draw some comparisons. Mm -hmm. And I believe you've looked at a Japanese example of moral panic. Just to diversify. Yeah. You're always focused on, you know, European. I'm looking elsewhere. Mine's a bit sort of male, pale and stale, (laughs) Anglo-centric. Yeah. Bit obvious. Like, come on, grandad, move on. Whereas James only focuses on Japan, which is somehow better. (laughs) Well, no, I'm just looking at the other side of the coin. Um... 
so some examples of some po- some supposed moral panics that we're we're not going to look at, but they're going to recur throughout. So we're not going to look at them in real detail, but they might be of use. Perhaps the first real example of moral panic was the Salem witch trials mm-hmm. in Massachusetts in yeah. 1692. The, the book. What's the book called? The play. Yeah, the play. The Crucible. The Crucible. Yeah. Yeah. So That's what what are the Salem witch trials? Uh, it's bunch of young girls mm-hmm. that claim they have been well weren't they like led astray by a witch doctor and they say that the devil's in some people and they, yeah they sort of like go into hysterics in this court and then start pointing to people and, go like, They're and everyone gets accused of being a witch yeah now the interesting thing about that one is it doesn't really fit in with the traditional view of the moral panic as stanley cohen puts it because at this time, of course, in 1692, there was no mass-produced, mass-consumed public press. Mm. There weren't newspapers or TV which could stir a panic. Mm. What stirred a panic for the Salem witch trials, do you think? In the, the tightness of the community. The tightness of the community is definitely one. So when a community is tight, it's like um, yeah. like water. The, the dye passes through it. They Sewing circles, all the gossip. All the gossip, yeah. Yeah. But Mabel who, Nattering to... But who would they listen to at this time? Who would be their main source of information and knowledge? Priests. The priests and the yeah. preachers. The people like the witch finder general. <laughs> Who's that? The, you know, the, the, no. So they had people at this time called witch finder generals uh. who would go round like, each place. Uh. They're almost like... They, they, you'd get them in. They'd mm. be like your consultants. <laughs> and they'd come in and you go, which, here's the witch finder general. And he comes in and he's sort of like, yeah. Swag is it? He's like, I'll let you know if you've got any witches. Like, I'll, do, I'll give it a once over and yeah. see. He goes, yeah, you've got five witches. <laughs> and it's that one, that one, that and that's what a witch so finder picks up a bit of dirt in between his fingers <laughs> like that, smells it. I so. smell a witch. I reckon you've got about three or four <laughs> Fresh witch trails here. <laughs> Tell you what, I'll come back Thursday. <laughs> I have found, shocking news, I have found 16 broomsticks. <laughs> 32 cats. So this is really a, a, like a, a proto-moral panic. A moral panic before there were moral panics. Mm. And... Because there's no press, there was also little opportunity to talk to decision makers. There's not a democracy, there's not a political process. Mm-hmm. So there's no little way to redress concerns. There's no little way to go to the government and say, there's witches everywhere, help us out. What does redress mean? Redress means like to solve a problem. Okay. Like ad- address it in a way that's going to help you. Okay. What happens then is the sort of grass grassroots spoken, visual and performative things become big. So things like media related to religion. So like you say, preachers and the Bible and religious pamphlets and texts like that. And these things like witchcraft and the place of women become a real hysteria, a real source of panic. Mm -hmm. So that's almost the panic before the panic. Now you probably know what panic I'm going to talk about. Uh, Don't give it away. Yes, I do. So, stage one of the panic, according to Stan Cohen, mm-hmm. is identification. Which is that something or someone is identified and defined as a threat to values or interests. So, Explain that. Though. So, you, you basically, you're identifying what is the problem. That is stage one. So, okay. something is seen to be a problem. 
Okay, okay. So in the Salem witch trials, the problem was seen as... Witches. Yeah, there's some bad stuff going on. Maybe it's witches. Okay. Now, to look at our example, I'm going to start with a little story. Go on. Weave a yarn. <laughs> the year is 1862. And a man called Hugh Pilkington is leaving the House of Commons. Oh. He's an MP. Member of Parliament. As he's walking out of the House of Commons, he is accosted, so attacked. He's Ooh. choked from behind, <laughs> hit on the head, roughed up and robbed. So this very senior member of society has been attacked. The press at the time reported on it and they said he had been garroted. Mm. What does it mean to be garroted? Have you heard that term before? Does it by any chance mean choked from behind, it, hit on the head and rocked? Yeah, but yes, but it's a very specific way of being choked. It's, from it's like, um, what is it? There's like a bit of rope and you like pull them behind. Yeah, like a wire or a thick piece of, or quite a fine piece of string, but a strong yeah. piece of string that you pull from behind. So it's an mm. attack from behind. Yeah. And basically, the press reports on this and everyone goes nuts. Of course. They go crazy and we see a huge moral panic, a huge scare. But we're at the identification stage, so mm. we need to identify what is the problem. It's important to say that this is not the first garrotting scare England had faced. Okay. There have been previous spates of garrotting that people have become very scared about. And even in the mid-1850s, so like 10 years previous, the Times newspaper reported that there were areas in London where a person cannot walk Quote, without imminent danger of being throttled, robbed, and if not actually murdered, at least kicked and pommeled within, within an inch of their life. So already there's setting the scene for this panic, this scare. Mm. Mm. Panic on the streets of London. And, well, not Birmingham, actually. Not Birmingham. No, no. it really is only London. <laughs> um, so they wandered to themselves. Yeah. Would life ever be sane again? <laughs> So there's a panic in 1856, prior to the 1862 one, but it doesn't really go anywhere. A few people are scared, but it sort of bubbles up and then disappears. Okay. In 1862, it comes back and people are scared, but there's a problem because the actual statistical basis for this problem is not there. And this is a really key part of moral panics. Okay. So while people are scared that they're going to get garroted, and people all around London are really fearful that there's pe people going around garrotting everywhere. If you actually look at the data, <laughs> if you look at the, the brass tacks, brass tacks. Yeah. you will see that... Separate the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, let's get facts, not fiction. <laughs> the Royal Commission on Penal Servitude, published in 1863, uh -huh. on all good bookshelves, oh, all good bookshelves. show that there were 97 violent robberies in 1862 which goes up from what it was in 1861, but the increase doesn't begin until the panic had begun. Wow. So the panic actually predates the problem. Oh, right. So the, the problem is, I'm going to say systematic, but that's not the systematic. word. Systematic. What, what is the word? Systematic. Systematic. <laughs> um, yeah. In fact, the figures before June for the year of the panic... Mm-hmm actually show there's been a decline from the previous year. Oh. So crime actually shoots up after people get into a big panic about it. Oh it God. almost feeds the crime. Mm. 
So with all that in mind, it seems sensible to argue that it's actually the actions of the press and the public, the government agencies that actually create that crime wave, mm-hmm. rather than being a crime wave in reality. In itself, yeah. This is interesting, and I'm going to draw a comparison with a more modern example, the one that um, Stan Cohen points to in his book. His book was about the mods and the rockers. Oh, yeah. Have you heard uh, of that? I've seen Quadrophenia. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about it. What um, are the mods and the rockers? The mods and the rockers were two groups of um, sort of young people. Yeah, these sort of youth groups. Yeah. yeah. Rode around on motorcycles a lot. Do it, isn't it? The rockers rode on motorcycles. Yeah. The mods, mods rode, rode on, on mopeds. Like little scooters. Yeah. yeah. And um, basically it was just two different types of music. The mods liked ska. Yeah. Which is like reggae, but crap. Yeah. Um, and the rockers... That's like, an opinion, by the way. That's an opinion, not a fact. Yeah. Uh, and the rockers liked rock. Jazz. Jazz. <laughs> okay, so, so this is in the 1950s and 60s in England. Mm. And I say it because we're both from Brighton and quite a lot of it occurred. In Bright- well, in, they came down from London to... To have these sort of yeah. fights. And the, the whole country got into a real, again, moral panic over this. There were fears that the youth were taking over. There were these big fights breaking out over the country mm. that it was basically mob rule mm. on the streets. Children weren't our future at that point. No, children were not the future. <laughs> and it, it goes back to that episode we did on teenagers where people are very afraid of youth culture. Mm. Stan Cohen did an investigation into this and he saw that actually the mods and the rockers weren't really defined as groups before this. They, there were some people who'd say they were mods and some would say they were rockers, but it was all more of sort of free association. Mm. But as soon as the press start to report on it, these two groups ossify and calcify into two 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 tribes. Let's not almost. use ossify and calcify. Let's I don't know why real... I thought calcify would be easier than ossify. <laughs> but they went into sort of two tribes and they said, mm. well, if everyone's calling us mods, then we're the mods. Yeah. And then that, that image starts to be created. They, they, they went under the banner. Of the mods. Yeah. So, and, and they didn't have one previous. So we see how the actions of the press, the public and government agencies can actually fuel the fire. Mm. It can actually make the situation worse. Okay. So that's point one. <laughs> Identification. Something or someone is defined as a threat to values or interests. Mm-hmm. They are seen, the garota is seen as a threat to the values and interests of Victorian society. Wait, are you identifying the people causing it or are you identifying the panic? We're doing a bit of... We're identifying the people. Ah, oh, okay. So it's the mods and the rockers and the people growing. They're the identifiers. Yes, they are the people that identify. And we're going to see what they're called in a second. Because mm. they, they've got a very specific name for these enemies of order. In okay. Sense. And this takes us to point two, which is media construction. Mm-hmm. So the threat that we've identified is depicted in an easily recognisable form by the media. Mm-hmm. So it's presented in a way that people can understand, that people can latch onto and go, they are the enemy uh-huh. and they are what needs to be addressed. In the sort of mid 1800s when the Grotting Panic happened, we're seeing a rise in newspapers, mm-hmm. in press. There's this idea that by the late 19th century, the English press is more powerful than ever and arguably at its most powerful. Why do you think at that stage it would be particularly powerful? More than ever before. What's the year? Well, the end of the 19th century, so 1862. Uh... Think about some of the things that we looked at that were happening in the Victorian era. 
What, oh, public education. Yeah, public education. Everyone can read it now. Everyone can read. Oh. And because everyone can read, newspapers are changing their target market. Mm. Whereas previously, they sort of were just those typical yeah. big banks of text. Mr. Toad sitting in a sort yeah. of armchair. And they're about the size of a yeah. duvet. <laughs> and you open them up and it's just text. You have to have one kid on either side holding Hold, it over. Yeah, and then you go turn and then turn the page. <laughs> now they're becoming, not quite at this stage, 1862, but it's getting there. Mm-hmm. We're getting a sort of birth of almost the tabloid tradition, the new journalism the emphasis on things like the headline and investigative reporting mm-hmm. and bringing it to the attention of the, the audience. Yeah. An audience that is becoming more and more working class and more and more receptive to these sort of big stories that are going to sell newspapers. Yeah. So that's the background to the kind of newspapers at this time. In the immediate aftermath of the attack on Hugh Pilkerton, the MP, mm-hmm. the press begins to fan the flames, basically. And when you found flames, they obviously get bigger. You don't say. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know, you might not know that. <laughs> Two days later, uh, so the 19th of July, the Spectator reported that highway robbery is becoming an institution in London. And roads like the Bayswater Road are as unsafe as Naples. Oh, wow. So that's pretty serious. Naples at this time considered to be like the mob capital. And oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, because the gangsters. Yeah. It says, case after case has been reported. Not true. We know that. We've seen that there's no actual rise in cases. The Observer followed this up and said, the wholesale highway robberies that are daily committed. They're talking about daily occurrences Mm -hmm. of these things. Again, case after case. It probably was, but one case like a week ago. Yeah. Another case like a month later. Every case is case after case. Yeah, it's always case after case. It's not case before case. Yeah. There's always a case after the case. Now, that's the sort of, again, we're, we're really at the identification stage there. Mm. Let's get on to the who it is and who are we going to blame for this. So they start saying the kind of people that they believe to be responsible. The Observer describes them as degenerate, coarse, brutal ruffians. <laughs> the Guardian says they're a race of hardened villains. Oh, right. And the Times, which is quite is considered to be one quite an upmarket newspaper, normally quite sober and mm. honest and sincere, they said the garotters and their species have displayed themselves in the true colour of their class as the profound enemy of the human race, and their outrages must be suppressed. Wow, pretty strong terms. Species, race. Yeah, and right. like they're an enemy of the human race. Yeah. Very interesting word as well, class. Mm-hmm. So this idea that class is becoming a big issue to the Victorians around this issue. What we have then is the creation of what Cohen calls a folk devil. Yeah, I know that. What does it mean? Uh, I only know it through Japanese folklore. I didn't yeah. module on it. It's like, um, well, they actually personified like a, like a monster represents like an overall feeling mm-hmm. of the land. So, like, uh, what's a good example? If there was a famine, it would be depicted and people would talk about it like an oni, which is like an ogre that takes all the grain and runs away. Yes. So, it's almost like a a scapegoat. Mm. Someone upon which you can load up all your concerns Mm. and issues. Yeah. So, in the the sense of the mods and the rockers, the folk devil is this generation of youth that are running amok. Lost generation. A lost generation. In... 
the sense of the Salem witch trials. It's the witches. They are the folk devil. They are the cause of all our problems. And the real devil. And the real devil, yeah. <laughs> and funnily enough, in the witch trials, the folk devil was the real devil. <laughs> now, in this time, the folk devil, these yeah. sort of ruffians, was particularly focused on a criminal class. And the particular concern was these people called ticket of leave men. People who are on ticket of leave. Uh, soldiers. Good guess, but wrong. This was introduced by the Penal Servitude Act of 1853. And the ticket of leave was effectively like a conditional pardon. So when you pardon someone of the crime, it's basically like you're on par- you can go out for a bit. If you're, like, good behaviour, you can get out of prison a little bit early mm. and you can spend a few years serving out your sentence on the streets with conditions. A bit like now. Yeah, a bit like now. Very much like now. We have that for the best behaved. You can, or you can serve a suspended mm. sentence, which means you might have five years suspended sentence yeah. and we're going to keep an eye on you to make sure you don't break the conditions of that. It's all about reforming now, isn't it? Mm. And this is a really important thing because at this time... They are letting out prisoners mm. onto the streets of London, mm-hmm. people who have been convicted of crimes, and they're saying, we trust you to a certain extent. Mm. And we're seeing that lots of people are blaming these individuals for the garroting issue. Yeah. The reason why there's so many people being let out is what did England do to its prisoners before that? Not kill them, say else. Oh. They didn't kill them. Well, they oh, did. Oh, uh, sent them to Australia. Yeah, they sent them to prison colonies. Yeah. In a policy called transportation. Mm-hmm. And it was the idea we need to get them out of our country. I've been trying so hard to put in Hang the DJ somewhere in there. <laughs> <laughs> I've been really trying. Well, we'll see. We'll see where we can use it. <laughs> transportation is phased out. Uh-huh. So the process of transportation basically ends in the 1850s. Now, there are prisons in England at this point, and we're going to explore that in more detail in a moment, mm-hmm. but the prisons are getting overwhelmed, basically, because there's too many... Whereas normally you could say, we've got too many prisoners, send some of them to, to Australia, to yeah. one of the prison colonies. Now they've got to do something with them. So mm-hmm. they're going, well, we'll release the sort of least serious ones onto the streets. Yeah. But the press are not happy with that approach. I can't imagine they are. So in 1862, the time is again... It referred to ticket-of-leave men, between November and December at least, 18 editorials. It called them pampered ruffians. (laughs) This idea that they're they're these evil criminal people, Mm. but they're being pampered. They're being treated really well. Treated above what they should be. Who who did the press work for? Were they... um, What's it called? Uh, Were they independent or did they work for the government? Well, they were independent by their nature, in the sense they were set up by business people. Uh-huh. But often there was a lot of collusion between newspapers and government because uh-huh. they wanted to have exclusive interviews and they wanted to have close contact with government sources. I spotted, like, what's the bonus of having a moral panic? Sell newspapers. Is that it? Well, we're going to see some of them. but okay. But also, these are rich people who are concerned with the moral what they perceived to be the moral decline of the society. Okay, all right, yeah. But, so that was in 1862, they called them pampered ruffians. As early as 1855, they called the system of ticket of leave 
a social nuisance of the world of, of the worst kind. Mm-hmm. So they start this kind of press attack on what they call habitual criminals. What do you think habitual criminals mean? Uh, it's like serial criminals. They do it all like when they get out, they do it again. Yeah, it's a habit. Yeah, it's like they can't break that habit. They just do it. It's there. It's in their nature. Mm. So for the press, these ticket and leave men were the problem. They mm-hmm. were the folk devil. Mm-hmm. You raise an interesting point, which is what is the benefit of the press creating a moral panic? Yeah. The benefit of it is. Firstly, for their sales, because if there's a moral panic, everyone wants the latest information. And it is like fanning the flames. You just want more and more of that. It's like, it is oxygen to them. Yeah. But the press can't create a moral panic from nothing. They can't just make one. You can't just say tomorrow, uh, the cause of all the world's problems are walruses. They're not. Well, there's obviously the walrus conspiracy theory, which is reading the Times yesterday. The world is run by walruses. (laughs) But if, if, for example, all the newspapers, or let's just say a couple of them, let's say the Times and Sun, say, and the Daily Mail, walruses are the cause of all problems. Yeah. People are going to see that and go, well, that's stupid. They're not. No, we quite like walruses, they're quite nice. Whatever. So you can't just create it out of nothing. Mm. Newspapers have to ensure that their views are in line with the public. Yeah. Now, the way we can show this is, in 1862, people were lapping up this garrotting panic. Mm -hmm. They were all over it. They were loving it. They were buying newspapers all the time. But after World War I, there was a similar issue. There was a similar problem, and it was a moral panic that did not materialise. After the war, men come back and they have this new thing, shell shock. Mm-hmm. And even if they don't have shell shock, they've been totally torn apart by this horrible, unprecedented conflict. Yeah. And there's a rise in the amount of crime being committed by these sort of soldiers returning from the front. Mm-hmm. This idea of the veteran had the potential for becoming a criminal folk devil, this deranged veteran. Yeah. And the newspapers tried to push it. They tried to say it, and um, the Daily Herald wrote of an epidemic of violence and atrocious murder sweeping the country. That can't go over well, can it? You can't can't rag on soldiers. Exactly. It didn't work because these soldiers, no matter what they were doing, Mm. the public wasn't going to accept them being characterised as demons, as evil. What war was it? I wasn't listening. What? What war was it? World War One. World War One. Oh yeah, they, well, they they would have loved them, wouldn't they? Yes, they, they are them. the heroes. Mm. So they're not going to swallow this moral panic, mm-hmm. and as a result, this is a moral panic that doesn't materialise. The press eventually has no stomach to create a stereotype from these heroes, mm-hmm. and the people just are like we're not accepting this. We're not going to buy your newspapers. We don't believe it. We don't want to denigrate and have a go at are returned heroes. Isn't it too, like, harsh a change? Because for the whole of the war... They're heroes. There was, like, propaganda everywhere mm. saying, like, John, I've seen them all in the history classes. I'm sure you've got them in your class. The posters. Yeah, yeah. The hit, like, go to the front and all that. Britain needs you. That guy sitting in that chair saying, what did you do in what the did war? You, Daddy, what did you do in, in the Great War? That's a classic. I sat here doing this. <laughs> Looking sternly. <laughs> I put you up for adoption. <laughs> but what that shows is that 
whereas the public are willing to accept in the garroting panic, they're not after World War One. So while the press play an, a crucial role in creating moral panics, in fanning the flames, there needs to be a fire there in the first place. Yeah. There needs to be a receptive audience that's ready and prepared to embrace the panic and accept this folk devil as the cause of it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Makes sense. That is part two. That is the media construction, which takes us nicely on to public concern. Acceptance. (laughs) (laughs) Public concern, which is, there is a rapid build-up of public concern. For the World War I veterans, it really fizzles out at media construction. Uh Never gets past that because the public aren't concerned. Yeah. When it takes, when there's a real moral panic and it's it's a goer, Mm -hmm. the public are going to be concerned. Now, at the height of the garroting panic, there was known occasions where two people in the streets, two innocent people, would attack each other preemptively because they thought that the other one might be a garrotter. Oh, right, right. There were also a series of anti-garrotting materials and anti-garrotting, what do you call them, products. So I've got here a, a little prop that I prepared earlier, which looks at some of the the products that were marketed towards Londoners during the garrotting panic. I've just handed it to James. James, could you describe perhaps one or two of those that you see? They're not real, are they? No, these are real... They didn't do this. These are real cartoons of products that were licensed at the time. Right, one's like a... um... There's a man working at a uh, sort of like carpenter desk, quite innocent looking. But around his neck he's got a... Sort of like a choke collar yeah. with huge, like, points sticking out of it. Huge spike. Is it? So I've got another one here. So this is an advert from 1862. It looks like that one, doesn't it? <laughs> so yes, it, does. it is. It's like a dog collar yeah. with spikes on the outside. How would that prevent you from being grotted? Well, I guess it would because yeah. like, you couldn't get the rope around. So the person who was trying to get the string or the rope around you, they'd have themselves spiked on the thing. Mm. And they wouldn't work. So this well, is... I assume they would. The person wouldn't go to it. They wouldn't sort of like get themselves spiked and then go. How did that happen? That, well, these and then look at the collar. These habitual criminals. Yeah. They uh, well, these um pampered ruffians probably aren't <laughs> used to this sort of thing. So this is the advert. So this is an advert from 1862. It says, "Do you wish to avoid being strangled?" Yes. Great. Of course. Yeah. It doesn't. If so, try our paint and anti-garot collar which enables gentlemen to walk the streets of London in perfect safety at all hours of the day or night. Mm. These unique articles of dress are made to measure of the hardest steel and are warranted to withstand the grip of the most muscular ruffian in the metropolis. (laughs) They would have to be pretty sturdy, because I've seen some muscular ruffians. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> see these most much it says the most muscular ruffians in the metropolis who would get black in the face himself before he could make the slightest impression upon his intended I, victim I love that imagery they are highly polished and elegantly studded with the sharpest spikes <laughs> thus combining a most elegant appearance with perfect protection from the murderous attacks which occur every day in the most frequented thoroughfares mm. What do I sign on? And then it gives you the price and how you buy it. How much was it? It was uh, seven shillings, six pence. That's a steal. That is a steal. It's a steal to stop you being stolen. Perfect. To stop your property being stolen. So that's one of them. 
a sort of anti-garrotting collar. What other ones are there? Uh, well, there's a quite a sensible one, which just... Well, it's not sensible, it's mental. Right? <laughs> but it's, it's like um, it's like a brolly, and he's got like a spiked ball at the end of it, which makes sense, swing it at people. Yeah, so like I've just noticed there's knee pads that have... Um, like nails sticking out of them. That's interesting. <laughs> oh, and the back of his heels have like huge nails coming out of them as well. Obviously. <laughs> okay, that's more ridiculous the more you look at it. With a huge like metal skirt. Yeah. Like almost a, a, yeah. a bubble. That would be useful in times of social distancing. That would. That would. Because it is like a two metre like skirt. It's like a two metre skirt that comes from the waist. And you can see there's a little fella trying to garrot the man. But it just can't. But it just can't reach. And then the final one there, I think that's two men <laughs> tied together. I didn't know what to make of Each that. facing the opposite way <laughs> so that they can't be, they technically can't be garroted from behind. That's now, some of these, like, that, the, some of them are genuine, so the, the spiked collar. Mm. These are all from the time. Some are from satirical magazines, yeah. obviously making fun of how panicked people are and the ridiculous lengths that people are going to. Yeah. But the very fact that they're mentioned points to this real deep and inherent panic. And many Londoners unquestioningly adopt these bizarre anti-grotting strategies. Mm. And even more, just simply do things like not go out at night because they're so fearful of this grotting scare that doesn't actually exist. Mm -hmm. This willingness to do these bizarre things suggests that there's a real concern in the public psyche that they're buying this line given by the press that the decline of transportation of prisoners to the prison colonies and the failures of the ticket of leave system are genuine, mm. that they are real fears that are felt by the public. Did the, money, did the government at the time get money for sending people to prison colonies? Were they like made to do labour? They did labour over there. It's not that they got money... Uh. It's that, that they didn't have to spend money on imprisoning them. Oh, right. And this, you've hit the nail on the head. Oof. I'm on fire. Because we're going to have a look at how the public are concerned, as are the press, with the changing ways that criminals are treated. Mm -hmm. The changing ways that the, the system of punishment has been adjusted. So pre-1820, I'm going to give you a list of crimes. And for each crime, I want you to say... What do you think the punishment was before the year 1820? Before the year 1820. Yeah. So roughly between, let's say, 1700 and 1820. Okay. Or by 1820, what would the punishment be? Okay. Okay, so the first one is treason. So like attacking the monarch or the prime minister. Death. Death. Gotta be death. Gotta be death. So we'll start, we'll start high. I'll, start give you, high yeah. I'll give you a variety. Um, next one. Let's go with arson. Burning something down. You get your own house burned down. <laughs> That'll learn. <laughs> get your own house burned down. No, arson, that carries death. Really? Yep, so arson is death. That's harsh. Let's mix it up then. Mm. Let's say stealing from a rabbit warren. Uh, fine. Death. Come on. That's going to be death. <laughs> What's a rabbit warren? So like where, if you, st if you take a rabbit out of the warren. So if you, yeah, if you nick a rabbit. Death. Oh my God. Yeah. So hopefully you're picking up a little bit I'm of theme. Picking up here. theme. So I'll give you one more. Yeah. Being out at night with a blackened face. So topical. Mm. Blacking up mm -hmm. so you're less visible. visible. Yeah. I'm gonna go with death. It is death. <laughs> Essentially, before 1820, England had a system that was called the Bloody Code. Okay. Which 
saw death as the primary form of punishment. Mm. Death was the way that you solved crime. As a deterrent. As a deterrent, yeah. There was no police force at this time, remember? Yeah. Oh, yeah I've, I've um, listened to something on Extra History about this. <laughs> That's Extra History. Who founded the police force? I don't know. It was... Um, they started like a little Come on. militia. Bobby's. Bobby's on the beat. Bob. William. Robert. Oh. <laughs> uh, Peel. R- Robert Peel. Robert Peel founded the police much, well, m- not much later, but in the 90s. It starts to come about in the 19th century. And it is established by the time we have the garroting panic. Mm-hmm. So crimes which carry the death penalty include treason, murder, arson, forgery, cutting down trees without permission, <laughs> stealing horses or sheep. Yeah. Stealing from rabbit warrens, pickpocketing goods. That's death. Yep. Uh, but it's up, there's an interesting thing, which is it's up to a certain value. And if it's under that value, it doesn't have to be death. Mm. And what would a- often happen in courts is they, the jury and the judge would sort of collude and decide it was less than that amount. So they don't have to sentence him to death. No, that's quite good. Well, and of good. course, being out at night with a blackened face. The question is, why so harsh? Uh, it's the deterrent, isn't it? That's the main yeah, reason. Yeah, act as a deterrent. It was yeah. thought that people might not commit crimes if they knew that they could be sentenced to death mm. and that they would be sentenced to death. How were these deaths done? Because uh, this is important as well. Hang. But what? In a darkened room? The gallows. In front of? Uh, oh, it was, it, was like, it was like bleachers, people watching. Yeah. Big... People used to get robbed at the bleachers. Yeah, and then sentenced to death. <laughs> and then sentenced to death. It was death. A, a cycle. It was just, just keep, keep the deaths coming. So there were pub- executions were public spectacles mm. all the way up until the 1860s. So it's a big idea that authorities thought that by hanging criminals in public, that would also act as a deterrent because it would frighten people into obeying the law. And these public executions were becoming really popular and f- whole fa- it would be like a family event. You'd bring the kids, and they would cheer the death of the criminal. The thing is that after the 1820s, this system starts to be challenged. Okay. And people start to think that, especially this sort of rising middle class, and you kind of boffins, <laughs> the intelligentsia... It's off. The sort of people that are seeking liberty are going... This is a bit barbaric to be watching and cheering people die and sensing people for a rabbit walk. Well, that's the, acad- that's the academics thinking that. That's the academics. But they're, they're seeing these people sort of baying for blood. Mm. These who would later become to be cast as the ruffians. Oh, right, this sort yeah. of working class. And they go, we don't really like that. That's not really to do. Yeah. Let's change that. So... The sociologist Barry Vaughan says that the, the metaphor of punishment changes in this period. Yeah. It goes from the idea that society is a, a body, and if you have you know, a gammy finger or a bad arm or something wrong with that body, the best thing to do is cut it off, okay, get yeah. rid of it. That's the bloody code idea. Uh-huh. If you have someone murdering people or stealing rabbits, mm. you kill them. Get them out of the Did that in hospitals as well, didn't they? Worked out a lot. What? Got a gammy arm, just locked just, it yeah, off. Yeah, and it, it, it marries up with what they were doing with the actual medical profession as well. Were they? I was joking. No, well, they didn't know. They didn't have... This is the period where they start developing things like antiseptic and things like oh, that. Right, right. And ways of treating um, sort of infections. But yeah, they would just cut it off mostly. Oh, wow. But over the 19th century, this metaphor changes to the idea that 
if you have a bad part of the social body, if you have a bad arm or a broken finger or whatever, you repair it and you reform it because we can't afford to lose a valuable member of society. Okay. We see this through things like the death penalty going down, the number of things that carry the death penalty go down. Things like public whipping are abolished by 1862. Transportation is abolished, as we know. So transportation to the colonies, because that's considered to be barbaric as well. Yeah. Taking people somewhere else and doing that. Dumping them. And by 1870, the prison is established as the normal punishment for both trivial and serious offences. These houses of reformation. Yeah. So you're reforming the person rather than just crushing them Mm. or killing them. So use of capital punishment reduces from roughly 33 per thousand offenders to 0.4 in a thousand. Okay. So 1836, it was 33 in a thousand. By 1912, it was 0.4 in a thousand. Okay. So it becomes a much smaller part of the punishment. Of the judicial system. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But with all of this in play, there is still a fear. And perhaps that fear comes from the fact that while, like we say, the boffins' attitudes have changed, Mm. while the structural and government ideas have changed those people on the ground still want to go to an execution mm. and see the guy who robbed the rabbit warren get hanged. Well, isn't it like a visual representation of, like, that's done? That's We've done. sorted that And out. also the, the very simple idea that there are villains in this world and they need to be got rid of. Mm. Not that we can reform them or we can help them. And we get it from below, but also from above. So this, the, the thing like the ticket of leave and the idea of pampered ruffians... Mm-hmm. These people in prison who are getting free board, so free living arrangements, free food. Yeah. People... They're living the dream. Well, people who are working class at this time are going, well, they've got it better than me. And I'm a hard-working schmo. Like, I go to the factory. I go back to my back-to-back house where I live with my 12 family members and another family. Mm. I don't get free food. I've got to struggle every day to get food. And these people can sit in prison, get free food, free free accommodation. Their own room. They're pampered ruffians. Uh, yeah. See, I can already see I'm convincing you. They are pampered ruffians. They are pampered ruffians. So people like, and that comes from below and above. So people like Viscount Dungannon. <laughs> the Viscount The Dungannon. Viscount Dungannon. He said the ticket of leave system is a serious and growing evil against which there were almost universal complaints. Yeah. The question then is, why so scared? Why are people so fearful of these ticket of leave people? Why has this change created such problems? Because change does create problems. Yeah. There was another really big change which caused the moral panic in the 1790s. The 1790s. A European problem. Napoleon? Bit before. America? Same time. Spain. I feel like if You're I You're naming every country. You're so close with Spain. Am I close to Spain? Yeah, Portugal. Yeah, north. France. There was a... What's the biggest event in Europe? Changes everything. Revolution. French Revolution. The French Revolution. The French Revolution sends shockwaves around Europe. When France does something, everyone else is afraid because it can... Transmit. They're trendsetters. They're trendsetters, absolutely. The revolution, what does it do? What do you mean? 
what happens in the French Revolution. Oh, right. Uh, they get rid of the aristocracy. Yeah. Get rid of the king. They get rid of the king. Yeah. Eventually, they kill their king. Yeah. And they become a republic. Become a, repu- a, a country without a king. Mm. Now, Britain sort of went through that with the Civil War. Yeah. But this is on a different scale. This is calling for a, a secular society, one separate from religion. Mm. Liberty, egalitarianism, fraternity. That's the, the sort of three bullet points in the French Revolution. <laughs> in England, it's like people are going crazy. Mm. People like Edmund Burke, who was a really famous philosopher, was like, this is a massive challenge to basic human principles. Yeah. What happens in the 1790s is there's something called monster mania. And there's a fear that there's this person going around London, the monster, uh-huh. attacking rich, aristocratic women. Okay, what? Well, you think about that. I will think about that. So there is a person attacking rich, aristocratic women. Uh-huh. What could that monster represent? Uh, the monster is seen as a sort of like poor working class. Yeah, isn't that not what it represents? But but why why is there monster mania in Britain, linking to France? What is the fear that this moral panic is honing in on? Uh, it's attacking aristocratic women. Oh, the 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 ro- poor rising up. The poor rising up yeah. and challenging the established aristocracy. Ah. Uh. So people are willing to see... People are anxious because of the unrest in France. Mm-hmm. The outlook of Londoners is being challenged by this insecurity, this idea that France has beheaded their king, the entire order of society is being challenged. Yeah. So as a result, when they start hearing about this person going around attacking rich people, they're like, it's here. Yeah, it's coming. It's coming. The yeah. ideas that caused the French Revolution are coming here. Okay, I see. And it's the same with the garroting panic. People are willing mm. to accept this panic because it hits at one of their fears. It hits at a problem that they're feeling. Well, why would the people fear that? The common people? Surely they want change. It's not always the case. No? No. Because while the French Revolution did see the beheading of the king, and in some ways it was positive in terms of it empowered ordinary people... There was also a big concern over... But there, was also, there were things like the terror and people going around just being killed and these purges. Uh, and also remember that the ordinary people in London... Mm. They, prob- time, they probably ingested this information through what they were given by the media. Exactly. Yeah. That's where they got their information from. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like... And remember, England has historically been at war with France. Yeah. So they're not best, best of friends anyway. Right. Uh, you don't want to start modelling yourself on the French model. No if you're English at that time. So they are receptive to that fear the same way that people in the grotting panic Mm -hmm. are receptive to the fear that there could be a problem with the system of punishment and the leniency that they're giving to these pampered ruffians is causing them to attack society. Okay, okay. So that is, part three, public concern. Public concern. Now... I think we'll just get this in here. I asked you to... Res- well, you offered to research a Japanese moral panic. I did. Let's try and explore some of the ways that we can map on what Cohen has said to your Japanese moral panic. Map on what Cohen has said to my moral panic. Uh, I think it works quite well. Unlike your computer, it's not turning on. 
Like you, I'm gonna paint a picture. Uh, I'm not 100 percent sure on the date, which is an issue. Yeah. But um, in sort of late-ish uh, 20th century, Japan was in an economic bubble. Mm -hmm. Like they were living the dream. They were buying everything, fast cars. Uh, suddenly it bursts. Mm -hmm. Sudden like crash down to earth. Yeah. What this causes is um, certain companies have to lay people off. Yeah. And because in Japan companies have, um, well, in all of Japan they value elders. They have to refer to elders in a certain mm. way and all of this. Uh, what it led to is young people getting fired mm -hmm. or just laid off. Yeah. And in Japanese society, your job is like a job for life. If you get offered in by a company, you're expected to be there for your whole mm -hmm. life. You get great pay, great benefits, like dental and all this stuff and this leads young people into feeling disenfranchised and not liking the size they were born in yeah have you heard of what a hikikomori is is that the uh the man who never has never leaves his room and doesn't engage socially or physically with anyone else exactly now we're going to look at three types of hikikomori i'll be very quick so are they, wait I think I see where this is going. So let's let's just map on a couple of these. So one, we've got the identification of a problem, mm -hmm. which is lots of young men being laid off. And they start, because companies aren't hiring anymore, because Jap the Japanese higher education is so strict and rigid and yeah. stressful, people are going, what the hell's the point? I don't want to go to higher education. I'll just stay in my room. Got it. Okay. So these are going to be the folk devils, aren't they? Yeah. And the, me the media hates this. Carry on. Um, I'll just lay out some facts. Uh, it's... I can't... Apart from the fact of when this actually was. No. Well, no, no, this happened in... Um, this is 2015. Okay, so this is going all the way up to the modern day. This is proper so, modern so day. So the sort of shockwaves of that... Yeah. Whenever it happened. Yeah. Whenever the bubble burst. But yeah, shockwaves... This is the... This is modern day coming in. So, here's just some facts about the hikikomori. Tamaki Saito yeah. says a quote that pe says the hikikomori are people in their 20s cooping themselves up in their room and not participating in society for a period of over six months. However, this does not have another psychological problem as its principal source. I have my issues with that statement because it probably does have something psychological. Mm. But that's what... So who, who is that guy? Like someone in the media? Uh, no, like a, one of the boffins. Okay. Like, like someone a, researching Someone it. researching it, okay. Uh, basically, there's three types of new person that shows up, and that is the hikikomori, yeah. the neat, and the frita. Neat. Not, neat. Is that not in education? Not in education, or, or employment, or, or training. training. Yeah. Because we have that here, where that's the status that people can have here. Yeah. You can be neat. Uh, frita, want to guess? I was one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, that, that doesn't uh, narrow it down. I suppose some sort of layabout... No. Um, no? No. What do you mean layabout? No, um, like taking seasonal jobs. Okay. As a career. Like sort of zero-hour contract. Zero-hour yeah. contract. Layabout. <laughs> <laughs> so, there's a little thing that I've taken from my sources. Mm. Just like a little frame. Wikipedia. It's not Wikipedia, actually. I was gonna, but then I thought if anyone researched it, they'd go, oh, it just takes from Wikipedia. 
It says, in many societies, a youth who feels isolated or rejected tend to form uh, subgroups to emphasise and idealise the qualities that allow them to be unique individuals. However, the Japanese society places an enormous value on conformity and all individuals live in and working in unity. Therefore, those Japanese youths who find themselves unable to conform may find themselves turning to isolation. Rather than work to challenge themselves, they may find it easier instead to isolate themselves in their rooms, disconnected from society. Mm. And this, the moral panic is that there's more and more of these people coming about mm-hmm. and they are a threat to the social fabric because they're not conforming to what it means to be an active Japanese citizen. Yes. Is that the heart of the moral panic? That is the heart. However, yeah. it was actually going on quite a little bit before 2018. Mm. So these things existed before 2018, but they leapt into prominence uh, because the media like focused in on it at this time. The media frenzy... Uh, led to uh, more outrage and disdain from the public. Why that time? Why then? Why that time? Because the educationals, the boffins, mm. started to look into why these neats and um, hikikomori yeah. side cropping up. And they said, oh, it's because of the post-economic crash and these companies are firing them. So they're putting the blame on the companies, mm. the clever ones. Yeah, the boffin. But everyone else is just putting the blame on the. Mm. But most importantly, the media, often run by companies, yeah. are saying it's not awful. Can't be awful. It's their fault. Yes. They're trapped in their room watching anime. Yeah. And like playing games. <laughs> uh, playing games and just disconnecting from our unit. Having Remember, sex with robots. Having sex with robots. Yeah. <laughs> is, so is this. Would you say this is an ongoing moral panic in Japan? Yeah. It is still very much an issue. Now, that is perfect. Yeah. Because in my moral panic... Obviously, the garroting panic has tied up. So your moral panic is probably at stage three, isn't mm. it? As in public concern. Have, yeah. Have there been any... Because stage four is government response. Gone. Has the government responded in Japan to this moral crisis? I, I don't panic. believe so. Not that I know of. Okay. They've, they've probably done something, but no, there's not more jobs being okay. made. Just, I think they're just making more part-time jobs so they get stuff done. Yeah. Uh, I'll just rattle through some terminology that the press have used. Mm. Uh, they refer to this sort of like rise in isolation of the youth as a stagnant youth. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, here's just some quotes. Turgid youth. <laughs> This is from the Sankei Shinbun, yeah. which means... Is that a newspaper? Yeah, Shinbun means newspaper. Yeah, Daily Mail. Yeah, basically. And it says, the non-working youth called Nito, which is neat in yeah. Japanese, uh, increase 1.6-fold over 10 years. Huge. <laughs> <laughs> it's nothing. Uh, have no will to walk and sponge off parents. Ooh, that's See, again, emotive language mm. and... Connecting with people's right. concerns. And it's, it's the fact that it says have no will to work. They got fired. Yeah. They, had, they were trying, but like, they just disenfranchised. And uh, placing the blame on the people. On the people. Rather than... Assist, in the same way that we had things like benefit scroungers, mm. benefit cheats. Mm. Uh, and the uh, Asahi Shinbun. Do you know Asahi? Oh, the, the beer. The beer. Because yeah. they, they do everything. They've got a newspaper. The beer newspaper. The beer newspaper. 
So, you know, reputable yeah. source here. Are they saying these spongy, <laughs> they don't even drink? <laughs> what are they doing? It'd be fine if they were staying at home drinking. Drinking a nice cool. A nice cool. These, these layabouts don't know the refreshing taste of a cool Hasai. <laughs> Uh, they say non-studying, non-working youth, Nito, in, mm. will reach one million in six years, says uh, Daiichi Semi Study. So bringing in, like, studies. But that's, that's just saying what the figure will reach to. I found that they're all saying, like, this is what's happening, it's terrible, look at how crap they are. But, although the study says that, the study also probably goes into this is why it's happening. Mm. And how you can address it. Yeah. And also, it also links into another moral panic in Japan, which is the ageing population. Oh. Because they, they're fearful that... They're saying this youth is stagnant, and it's, mm-hmm. like, really turgid in the world. Yeah. So they're not going to fill the shoes. No, not going to fill the shoes of this ageing yeah. population. You don't even need shoes if you don't go outside. Yeah, or in Japan, they always wear sandals. That's true. Not going to fill the sandals <laughs> of the next generation. And um, Not fit to wear their kimonos. Not fit to wear their kimonos. And um, the idea that they're in total isolation means an ageing population and a decreasing population quite massively mm. as well. They're probably not going to refill that population if they're just stuck in their house. Or so it, it sounds to me like a, a moral panic in the gestation period. Like it hasn't fully come about or even... There, there's lots of metaphors in the the literature on moral panics about it being like a volcano mm-hmm. in the sense that it builds up, it's there under the surface, builds up, builds up, it explodes in a very short period of time and then it settles. Yes. So in this, the Japanese case that you spoke about with both population and the, what they called hi, hi. Oh, uh, hikikomori. The hikikomori. These seem to be things that are, you know, there's little bits of lava coming out here and there mm. but we haven't quite seen that explosion yet. Yeah. Do you want to know the next stage then? Go on. So stage four of five, government response. Government response. So there is this response from the authorities and opinion makers. Now, what makes this response interesting and what makes it unique with a moral panic? Well, I'm going to ask you, how do you think the government are going to respond? So we've got a public that are going insane. Mm. We've got a press that are fanning the flames of that insanity. Mm. What are the government going to do? What are the government going to do? I don't know. Well, let's say in the, in the case of the garroting panic, uh-huh. we have the press rallying against these ticket-and-leave men, the pampered ruffians. We've got the public saying it is not safe to walk on the streets. These criminals are being treated too leniently. Treat criminals harsher? Yeah. And that's what... Um, so it's reactive. It's reactive, absolutely. I think that's a really good way of putting it. Mm. Because it's not based on rationality, because the rational approach would be to say it's not as big as a problem as you think it is. Mm-hmm. The government reacts out of proportion. Yeah. They go over the top in order to deal with the issue. That's one of the, the signs of the moral panic. So in this one, we had, of course, the police were, were ordered to put more men on the streets and increase arrests. Mm-hmm. So that was one. Interesting, because we know the police are a new organisation. They're under pressure to justify the cost that they're, they're making to the government. Mm-hmm. It's a relatively new force, and it's not really popular with lots of members of society. They don't really like the police. It, it, it was like something against civil liberty. Yeah. yeah. Well, as we've seen in the modern world, the idea of a really powerful police can create problems in itself. Mm-hmm. They become almost like the most powerful gang. Yeah. 
unchecked by... Who will police the police. Exactly. The police arrest some people on suspicion of being grotters, just based on suspicion. It's almost like profiling. Yeah. They pick the, the poorest and the most wretched and the people that look like those habitual criminals. You don't have to look at me so intently or something. <laughs> <laughs> and they arrest them. So that's the sort of response, boots on the ground. Yeah. In terms of the, the legislation, the laws passed. The interesting bits. In 1864, yeah, we've got to get really deep into this legislation. <laughs> the Penal Servitude Act, 1864, brings in longer prison sentences. Mm-hmm. It abolishes three and four year terms and it makes five years the bare minimum for all sentences. Okay. So it's a step back to it being a bit tougher. Yeah. The Prisons Act of 1865, it brings in harsher treatment in prisons. Uh. So they introduce what's called hard labour. The treadwheel and the crank. The treadwheel was, you know, like... Um, a hamster. Very similar to a hamster, yeah. but not a ball. You know, like in when you go to the gym, you, well, you wouldn't know. But if you go to the gym and you go on the running machine, yeah. it's a treadmill. Yeah. This was the first use of the treadmill. No. It wasn't for exercise purposes. No. The idea was that to break a man in prison, mm. you give them a really pointless task to do repetitively. Oh, right. That results in nothing. Uh-huh. So prisoners, it's, it's a bit like the, the whole idea of you roll the boulder up to the top of the hill, rolls back down again, you roll it back yeah, up, rolls back down. Just make you do it again. Yeah. Yeah. The prisoners go on the treadmill and they just run and run and walk and run and run all day. Mm-hmm. It just turns this wheel. Doesn't do anything doesn't at all. Doesn't create any power. Right? Doesn't create any power, doesn't contribute to anything. Because right. the idea is you're breaking them. Because there's nothing worse than expending effort on something that has no impact. Mm. We're probably a great body as yeah they probably made them better garotters yeah superheroes they could just run away (laughs) the crank is a similar thing and it was literally you just turned this this crank like you turned a wheel Uh and it really difficult for no reason Uh it didn't do anything so they weren't just really fast they were really strong so you were were sentenced to like if you were in prison you might be sentenced to a thousand turns of the wheel a day Uh, I can picture that being torturous but yeah, they would come out, you're right to say they'd come out like absolute muscle-bound <laughs> superhuman. After five years, yeah. they go, well, it's not three years anymore, it's five years, <laughs> and we're going to make you work out every day. <laughs> but interestingly, the historian um, Sindel argues that conditions are as bad as they were at the beginning of the century. Oh, right. So it's a reversion. Mm-hmm. We're going back to treating people really badly as a deterrent. In 1869, the surveyor general, who was like in charge of the prison systems and punishment, mm. Joshua Jebb, who many people saw as kind of the glue that, hold this, that held this reformative system together, uh-huh. the person who really pushed forward, we're trying to reform people rather than just break them. Yeah. He dies and he's replaced by a more authoritarian guy called Edmund Duquesne. Edmund Duquesne. Which is perfect. Oh. And he instituted a system which he called... Hard bed, hard board, hard labour. So you sleep on just wood. Yeah. No cushions, nothing comfortable. It's horrible. You can hardly sleep. Mm. Hard board, you've got to earn your keep. You can't just be a pampered ruffian and get your food delivered to you. There's no extras, no sundries. Mm. It's pure, you know, horrible. Yeah. And then hard labour, things like the treadmill. And the crank. And the crank. Then we have, really, the, the capper, the cherry 
<laughs> on the icing. The Habitual Criminals Act, which really ossifies <laughs> and calcifies. God damn it. No, it creates this idea of a criminal class. Yeah. So if you're convicted for a second time mm. for a felony, you're given an automatic seven-year sentence and you're labelled as a habitual criminal. Oh, right, right. So as someone who almost has criminality in their blood is the idea. If you do it twice, yeah. it's not a habit. And remember the terrible economic de- deprivation at this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in the short term, really harsh laws mm. to try and counter the panic, to try and calm everyone down. That is the fourth one. Government response. Government response. The last one, calm. Which is essentially the panic recedes. It goes away. Or it results in some social shift which sees people just adjust to it. Mm. So with things like the mods and the rockers, the government instituted loads of really strict penalties. They did things like curfews in certain Mm -hmm. places. They really fed into it and really made it worse in many ways. But eventually it just goes away. Yeah. Because it's not that big of a deal. People get bored. Yeah. It's not an interesting story anymore. No. People find a better musical scar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, newspapers can't perpetuate a story forever. It's mm. like people go, oh, I'm bored of the mods and the rockers. <laughs> I'm bored of the grotting panic. Give me something else. Yeah. We've seen them fight on Brian B. Yeah. It's been done. That's done. We've seen Quadrophenia. <laughs> so the press turns attention to things like there's a revolution in Greece... Um, there's some problems in Lancashire with working conditions and strikes and other just generally different issues around the world. Yeah. In June 1863, the, the Times was celebrating some of the, the big changes that the government had made, some of the, the bigger legislation at that stage they put in place. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were almost, and this is normally the end of the crisis, when a newspaper says, we've done it. Yeah. So they're going like, um, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. <laughs> they said it was it was a, a success because there's more vigilance by the police. The severity of applying the laws was getting a bit better, mm-hmm. and it it was shown in the determination on the part of the public. Like we have done this, we've we've achieved something mm-hmm. here. Not what, you've done this. You've done exactly. Yeah. You've done this. <laughs> But, as we said, really, events in Italy, Greece, America, the real reason that yeah. interest subsided. The shift of interest. The effects of the panic. In the short term, we have those sort of panic measures. Mm. That's the short term. In the long term, we have the fact that these laws stay on the statute book for a long time. Mm-hmm. As we said, getting rid of these shorter prison sentences, harsh punishment, hard board, all of this stuff. Does that stay on? Stays on oh, for quite right. a while. Uh, it's not really until after World War One that things change. Mm. There's a Gladstone report in 1895, which challenges some elements of it, but it's completely ignored until after World War One. But the point is, this these laws are sort of unimaginative, heavy-handed, and they create the conditions that go that hark back to the kind of bloody code era. Mm. Step back. It's a step back. It's regressive as yeah. a result of the panic, and it all goes to show that. The importance of, a, of an event is dictated by, first, the amount of coverage it receives, but also how willing the public are to accept that coverage. Mm. And the it didn't great, work with the soldiers. And it didn't work with the soldiers because they weren't as willing to yeah. take it. And so the grotting panic concludes. concludes. Mm. And only really after that, after World War One, do we see a move back to 
a more reformative prison idea. And like today, even though we have big challenges to that idea, and there's a huge portion of the population who want the return of things like capital punishment, mm. and they want to see criminals or prisoners suffer in prison. They don't want to see them have things like educational opportunities or mm. chances to work in the community. They want them to be suffering in prison. The legacies of that still continue in that sense, but we have seen a return to the more reformative system. Yeah. Conclusions then. Can I ask a question? Yes, of course. Uh, have there ever been a moral panic that has led to progression? Or has it always been it was better before because of a change? Yeah, so I think there, there definitely are moral panics that lead to progression. I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head. I mean, the difficulty in naming them is that they stem from irrationality. Mm. So they normally identify something which isn't real. They might, they might identify a real problem, but the target of that problem is not a real problem. And they also rely on the press supporting it. All right. But I suppose you could say things like moral panics in regard to things like the disappearance of children. So after the disappearance of Madeleine McCann, mm. there's a moral panic there because people start worrying about, well, if I take my child, they might get stolen. Yeah. When in reality, it's a very rare occurrence. Mm. But the profile of the Madeleine McCann case and the profile of the reportage on it meant that governments now communicate more carefully over missing people and things like that. Or fear of terror in planes and that. Yeah, that it's led to heightened security measures. Which is almost definitely a good thing. But you could argue in some cases, and I think this is often the case, the, the remedy is worse than the malady. Yeah. The cure can be worse than disease because the, the legislation is so heavy-handed. So something like terror is a good example because although we have clamped down on things like airport security, it's also led to really quite illegal, based on human rights standards, detention of people without um, charge. Mm-hmm. So just people being suspected of being a crime because of their racial background or something, and they they can be detained without charge for a certain one step forward, two step back. Exactly, yeah. I suppose a moral panic stems from not knowing stuff, ignorance, and that's that's our conclusion, really. What yeah. what do moral ten- panics tell us about human nature? Uh, human nature. Yeah. One more. Get sw- we get swept up in things. I think this is, it's a recurring theme, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it always gets... It, it, nothing ever builds slowly and becomes like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, takes natural steps. People want things to yeah. happen. And people get swept up in these mm-hmm. waves of panic and waves of commitment and, mm-hmm. and that it lacks the sort of rationality. Mm. It's very like, interesting like, making one enemy... Mm. So that everyone can rally behind well, it. You know, what, one good way of seeing what a society is, is looking at what it's scared of. Mm-hmm. Defining itself like we are, like in modern society, we're very scared of, like you say, things like terror. Mm-hmm. What else are we scared Spiders. of? Spiders. Spiders. <laughs> <laughs> but by looking at what a society is scared of, we can tell what kind of society it is. Yeah. What can you see about the Victorian society um, from the Grotting Planet? Uh, what are the people scared of? The people are scared of crime. Crime, they're, and they're particularly scared of the, a criminal class. Yeah. The, the sort of habitual criminals. Mm. Why are they scared of them? What, what has been the thing that has scared them? What has been the change that they're uncomfortable with? 
was a prison change. Yeah, yeah, to a more reformative system. Yeah. That they haven't caught up the change of attitudes towards criminals mm. from a bloody code to a reformative model mm. has shocked people and it's scared them. And as a result, we can see that Victorian society is conflicted. It's not unified. Yeah. There's different aspects of it arguing different Was a change too quick for the people? Yeah, change was too... It, government moved too fast to the people uh, and then the press... That's the first. <laughs> so the, me- the metaphor essentially is that the fear is the fire, mm-hmm. the press fan the flames and the government are like the firefighters who have to deal with it. Yeah. And they have to sort of... They have to go, well, we, we have to acknowledge this flame or it could engulf more things. Mm-hmm. And we've got to try and fight it in a way that doesn't crush people's spirits, but is effective. Yeah, metaphor sort of fell down. Yeah. <laughs> in essence, then, I would argue, and feel free to correct me, mm-hmm. moral panics speak not only to the fundamental fears of human, but also the, the circumstances at the time which arouse their concern. So whatever era they're in, it speaks to that. So... The monster spoke to the fears of English people during the time of the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. The garrotting panic spoke to people's fear of the changing ways of punishment. The mods and the rockers spoke to um, the fear of youth culture. Mm-hmm. And your Japanese example with the hikikomori. the hikikomori speaks to the fear of a generation of youth who aren't engaging in civil society. society. Yeah. Yeah. However, they also raise the issue of this kind of confirmation bias which is the idea that we are desperate to jump upon ideas that confirm our own beliefs. Mm -hmm. So public jump very easily upon the folk devil targets. They jump very easily on these embodiments of their fear. They're willing to say, well, I've just got a feeling in my gut that it's the fault of immigrants. Mm. Therefore, as soon as anyone suggests it, that confirms my bias. So I go, yep, that's it. A bit scruffy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> so this confirmation bias shows that they're failing to view the situation rationally, which I think is the big message we can take from yeah, it's, it's moral panics. That is very important. Yeah. The, uh, the, the willingness to... Well, you having an opinion and someone else agreeing with you and you thinking then your opinion's right. And that sort of echo chamber kind of idea. Exactly. <laughs> echo, echo Right, should you do a quick quiz? Quick quiz, quick come quiz. on. Question one. This is a tough one. Because mm-hmm. it was a long time ago. What was the name of the MP who was garroted in the summer of 1862? Pilkington. Do you remember his first name? I knew you would get Pilkington. Oh, oh God, Pilkington. Thomas. No, Hugh. But I'll give you a mark for that, because that's yeah. pretty good. Question two, what was the bloody code? Uh, it was very harsh punishments for criminals or murder. Yeah, e.g., what would you get punished for? Nicking a rabbit. Yeah. yeah. From a warren. From a warren. Two out of two. Question three, who were the main folk devils in the Garrotting Panic of 1862? The criminal class. Yeah. What were uh... the particular people who were let out? Oh, the pampered ruffian. The pampered, yeah, but what was the, the name of that system? Oh, uh, ticket, ticket yeah. man. The T- ticket collectors. Ticket of leave. Ticket leave. Yeah, I'll give you that. That's pretty good. No. Oh, but this name, okay. You'll definitely get Christian Ford. What kind of ruffians were the ticket of leave men, according to a Guardian editorial published in 1862? Oh, pampered ruffian. Pampered ruffians. If I remember correctly. <laughs> and finally, question five. 
how had the metaphor of punishment changed in the early 19th century? Uh, wait, was this post-grotting? Yeah, how does it, no, how does it change from Bloody Code to Time of the Grotting Planet? How had the metaphor of punishment changed over that time? It was reformative. Yeah, so what, use the metaphor of the social body. Oh, it wasn't cut the limb off. Yeah. It was heal the limb. Heal the limb. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Right, five, I'll give you five. Five out five. five. Pretty yeah. good. Um, do you want a cup? I'll give you a couple of questions. Okay, give me a couple of questions from yours. Uh, how do you pronounce the? <laughs> oh. No, no, no. I want no, no, no. I want. Really? I'll give you three then. Hiri. Hiri Hori curry. Hiri curry. Hiri curry is the yeah. That's suicide. ritual suicide. Hokusai. <laughs> what was it? Hokusai is the famous oh, yeah, painter. Yeah, the wave. Bit of an H. I know it begins with an H, I just can't get it. Do you want me to give it to say, you? Say the second letter. I. He. 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 What if I was to say he, ki? He, ki. No, he, ki. Oh. He, ki, or? He, ki, ko. He, ki, ay. He, ki, ko, mori. He, ki, ko, mori. He, ki, ko, mori. He, ki, ko, mori. Give me some other questions. Right. So one of the problems was the letting people, people get, young people getting fired. Yeah. Uh, what was the other moral panic that was sort of coming at the same time? What separate from the people staying in their houses? Yeah. Um, age, elderly population. Yeah, age of population. population. Perfect. Uh, why did young people start getting fired? Financial crash. Yes, financial crash. Burst the bubble. Give you one more. What's a freer? Oh, not a layabout. It's not a layabout. It's someone who does odd jobs. layabout. Odd jobs, like zero-hour contracts. Yeah. yeah. Who stays in the house and do, does Japanese or for Brooks. Yeah. Not that. And has sex with robots. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll give you that. Excellent. Right, that is the end of this episode. Moral panics. I don't know what the next episode is going to be. Uh, neither do I. But I'll figure something out. Yeah. Um... Anyway, that's the end of this episode. Yeah. Say bye. Uh, bye. And if I could just finish off, watch out for walruses. Oh, they're coming. Cool, bye. Cool, bye. Bye. bye.